Welcome to episode 144 of the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This time around, we're looking at Season 6, Episode 18, Milagro. The original air date was April 18th, 1999. The action primarily takes place in Washington, D.C., and the IMDb user score has actually lowered since the Fox Marathon. That's the second time that's happened. It's come down from an 8.5 out of 10 to an 8.1 out of 10. The episode centers around a writer who has something of an unhealthy obsession with Scully. And he's been writing a story about her ever since he noticed her in his old neighborhood. There were no apartments available in her building, not that she spends much time at home. So he has bought the apartment next to Mulder's building, just to be closer to her, since she's inspiring a character in the novel that he's writing. We don't know a lot of that at first. All we know at the beginning is that he's a writer in an apartment that has really nothing but table chair and typewriter. We see a lot of passage of time, there's no words being put to paper, until the writer just pulls his own heart out and looks at it. Come back from the opening credits, and Mulder and Scully are investigating a case where Mulder believes it's a case of psychic surgery because hearts are being removed from victims with no other outside sign of any kind of surgery, any means for this to be happening. And the writer is next door listening to all of this. Eventually start building a case. Scully's refuting the psychic surgery role. And trying to defend the writer when she realizes that, yeah, he's got an unhealthy crush on her, but she thinks he's otherwise harmless and not the killer. But as the correlations between his manuscript and the crime start to mount, he is considered a serious suspect. And eventually he realizes that, yeah, this is his creation, so whatever he imagines is coming true. And this killer is out there committing the perfect crimes just to make sure Mulder and Scully get involved so that, you know, he can get closer to Scully. He recognizes that the way the story is going, Scully has to die. For some reason, he writes that anyway, so it starts to happen. Scully's being attacked in Mulder's apartment while Mulder is in the basement trying to prevent the man from burning his manuscript. And Paget eventually does destroy the manuscript, which destroys the character he's imagined and then tears out his own heart to prevent anything like this from happening, since his imagination is coming to life. Now, according to the episode introduction on the Blu-rays, this is Sean Penn's all-time favorite episode of the series, and it is generally highly regarded. I'm one of the ones that it doesn't quite engage. I enjoy a slow pace, and Kim Manners is good at pacing this out and making it work. Maybe it's just that my own experiences with writing fiction haven't been to the point where the characters seem real, and that may very well be why my fiction is terrible, but I just couldn't fully engage with it. Now, this one is directed by Kim Manners. The original idea was the thought of Jun Scheiben, where he's realized that when he's writing Mulder and Scully, they seem like real characters to him. So he just took that one step further. Now, Frank Spotnitz was also involved in this, and he was contributing. It's actually his writing that we see in the cards on the writer's wall, or Paget's wall, that, that block out with the index cards. 
So they did the story and broke it out, but the actual scripting was done by Chris Carter. Now, Paget is played by John Hawks. He is best known for Winter's Bone, The Seasons, Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, and most recently, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, the Academy Award-nominated film, with the Best Picture nomination. He's got 133 acting credits to his name. He was Lennon in four episodes of Lost. He was in the sequel to Donnie Darko. He was in Millennium. He was in an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, so no shortage of credits for his work, but they seem to be a lot of small roles in prominent projects. Now, Nestor Serrano is the killer that the man imagines here. He's got 121 acting credits to his name, including The Day After Tomorrow, Bad Boys, Act of Valor, and Lethal Weapon 2. Now, if anything, I would say the low point of the episode would be the people that they cast as the 16-year-olds who were killed at Lover's Lane, probably because they weren't anywhere close to 16. Angelo Vacco is one of them, so he plays the male. He's got a lot of credits in terms of casting department and miscellaneous crew with voice acting, with assistance. This is actually his third episode of The X-Files. He previously played small parts in Effie Mascalada and Talitha Kumi, and will return for his fourth and final appearance in Improbable in Season 9. So those are his 22 acting credits, but as I said, he does have 99 miscellaneous crew credits, including a number of voice acting credits and that sort of thing. At the time he played the 16-year-old, he was 28 or 29. That was the year he turned 29. He's best known for his work behind the scenes in I Am Number 4, Evolution, G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra, and War for the Planet of the Apes. Now, Jillian Bach has 32 acting credits to her name. She played his female love interest, Maggie. She was 26 at the time of filming. So while she wasn't brought up from the production crew, because, I mean, Angela Vaccaro does have some credits as, you know, assistant to members of the crew long before this episode of The X-Files, I suspect she was cast just to kind of match his age. So you didn't get any creepy vibes by having a 29-year-old trying to seduce an actual 16-year-old in the car. She was also in Two Guys, A Girl, in a Pizza Place, ER and The Mentalist. Now, Casey O'Dell plays the groundskeeper. He doesn't have a lot of acting credits to his name. That he's only got the 10 acting credits, and this is his only appearance in The X-Files. What he's got are 158 stunt credits, which makes sense because his only role is to be tackled by Mulder. He's got very little dialogue, so this is someone where you want him to be able to have David Duchovny jump on top of him and be okay. So. Casting a professional stuntman in that role makes a lot of sense. And then really the final guest star in the entire episode is a prison guard. A small part in this one, his name is Michael Bailey Smith, 100 acting credits to his name, still active, who's also in Men in Black 2, The Hills Have Eyes, Nightmare on Elm Street, The Dream Child, and The Hills Have Eyes 2. So this is an engaging episode in terms of the tone and the mood, in terms of the long-term plot. We don't see a lot of contributions to the ongoing story. It is a bit of a character piece as far as Scully's concerned. But to me, it just didn't really grab me. 
For some people, the most interesting thing would be that one of the gravestones lists the names of characters who had just recently died on Party of Five. So apparently X-Files and Party of Five take place in the same fictional universe. As far as the science is concerned, well, having things in your imagination manifest as something real, the conservation of energy there is going to be just totally out to lunch. Now, having someone who can physically interact with Scully, but who cannot be shot with bullets, as though they're not really there, but they can work with it, that violates some of the most fundamental laws of physics, including Newton's laws. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. If he can impact Scully, Scully can impact him. Nothing can happen in isolation. There's always a mutual interaction. Suppose you could set it up so that, yes, his hands are physical, but his body is not, but then how can you see him? How is the light reflecting what's coming off of him? So yeah, the science doesn't come close to working in the existence of the killer or the imagination made manifest, let alone take someone's heart out without causing trauma to the surrounding parts. So yeah, unfortunately the science in this one simply doesn't work. But the episode overall holds up as an entertaining hour that I just have never felt really compelled to come back and watch unless I'm doing a sequential watch through of the entire sixth season. Anyway, that's about all we have to say about Milagro. Join us again in two weeks' time when we discuss The Unnatural. Thank you for listening.